As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all of my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, every week I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic and trying to get straight answers on the moral, political, and social issues of the day. I invite you to join me and have your questions about today's tough topics answered as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. This episode is the second in a series on the global refugee crisis. According to UNHCR, an unprecedented 65.6 million people around the world have been forced from home. I'm speaking with Amir Awad. Amir is a lawyer who works for a privately based Melbourne firm, and he's talking to us today about his experience of dealing with asylum seekers firsthand in his capacity as an immigration defence lawyer. Amir, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. Amir, I guess for our listeners, the first thing they really like to know is a little bit more just about yourself and your personal background. Can you tell me about the nature of your work and especially how it's connected to asylum seekers? Sure. So I have graduated in 2009. Uh, My first job uh, shortly after was with a Melbourne-based firm that was contracted by the Australian government, by the Department of uh, Immigration and uh, Border Protection at the time, to uh, provide um, legal service legal services to uh, the irregular maritime arrivals or the uh, asylum seekers who come to Australia illegally by boat. Um, this was under a program called IAAAS. And in that time, uh, did you have some kind of exposure to individuals? Because one of the difficulties of talking about the, you know, the refugee crisis, as it were, is that anything that involves the word crisis is usually beyond human comprehension. I mean, it's very difficult to get a sense of the particular challenges of individuals. So if you could tell us a little bit more, please, about the first-hand experience that you may have had and the encounters, the human stories that um, perhaps, you know, you've, you've been in contact with? Uh, yes, of course. Look, it was a, an, an eye-opening experience for me as, as a young lawyer um, or, or, or as, a, as a young human, at a, you know, um, to, to be exposed to um, all those stories and see, um, see the suffering of, of, of the asylum seekers who come from all different parts of the world. Um, I did travel to, um, over the course of six years, uh, five or six years, to almost every single detention center around the country, um, including obviously Christmas Island. This is where you know it all starts, um, and 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 every in every um, in every state of of, uh, of Australia. Um, we, with our work, we try and keep um, our emotions intact. You know, if you like, uh, positive or negative, because we don't want it to affect our work. At the end of the day, we we are dealing we helping them in, in um, to present their claim um, to, the, to the Australian government in, a, in the best possible um, legal way. Um, however, 
as I said, um, there has been a lot of stories that over, over the years, can't talk about specific cases, but I want to probably give you a couple of examples of, of um, you know, the kind of asylum seekers that I met. I've, I've, I've seen, yeah, I've seen, um, I've seen uh, asylum, asylum seekers as young as 12 and 13 years old um, coming to Australia on their own. Um, starting the journey, um, you know, in um, sometimes Afghanistan, all the way to um, to Malaysia, and then the uh, to Indonesia, and then to to Christmas Island. Um, they they uh, I've 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 had clients at that age, at the tender age of 13, 14 years old, going through all this whole process on their own um and obviously the australian government sorry well i was just going to say Amy, you you have that christmas island experience i'd love to hear more as you say about those stories and i i also note that maybe you can give us a bit of context again in your perspective i mean from your perspective rather as a lawyer as someone who is employed by the government more or less provide a defense and to advocate for uh, refugees and asylum seekers. I would be very interested in that. But just to give some additional context for our listeners, I suppose Christmas Island is one part of the equation, but lately it's, um, uh, I suppose, the story of asylum seekers on Manus that has been in the news. And so to that end, Behrouz, you know, I believe the surname is Bukhani, who's an Iranian refugee and a journalist on Manus, uh, spoke of the atrocities of, of what he's seen there, you know, the, the forced captivity, the lack of medicine, the, the electricity and water shortages. And I'm wondering if there was any crossover with those experiences on Christmas Island as well. Um, I, I haven't been to Man- Manus Island or PNG. I haven't personally, but I do have a lot of friends um, who have made this journey and worked under those conditions. Um, uh, whether they are lawyers or interpreters, and obviously the stories that I've heard are, you know, as bad as what's you know been going around in the media. The the, the conditions are. Uh, inhumane conditions, you know, for asylum seekers and for the people who are trying to help them. Um, in Christmas Island um, or in other detention centers around the country, obviously it's not ideal conditions. However, um, there ha- the, the, the asylum seekers had uh, the minimum, you know, um, uh, you know, I would say decent, decent conditions in terms of food, uh, clothes, uh, you know, safety, um, that's from my experience. Uh, I can't talk too much about Manus Island, as I said, because I haven't been myself. Well, even so, could you tell us a little bit about the the daily lives of the people who are held on these islands? I mean, certainly Christmas Island. Okay, I I the way it works with us is that we have we we, we do um, so in the morning after we check into the detention center, we we get given a, a room where we're gonna. We conduct our interview, initial interview with the client, um, get the information from them, prepare the application for them, and uh, we can see what what they do. And they speak to us about what they do. Obviously, it's a, it's a, they they do get kept there for a long time. Um, um, my understanding is that the, the detention center has some, you know, whether it's sport activities or um, you know music activities, just for them to occupy the time. Um, however, um, I do I have heard. 
a lot of complaints, obviously, from 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 my clients over the years about the conditions and sometimes uh, the treatment um, of you know. Um, from what they face in in the detention centre. Well, I suppose I'd like to hear more about those conditions, Amir, and if you feel that, you know, our government stands in contravention, as it has been accused, of UN law when when we hear the heinous things that we have. I mean, have you encountered any stories where you feel uneasy or uncertain or actually feel um, maybe even offended by the treatment of the people with whom you work? There has been, um, over the years, it has been sometimes very, very difficult to see uh, um, what, what the clients are going through. Um, it, it's, it's a very, obviously, sensitive and, and a difficult topic um, discussing the, the, those, you know, the government policies and, and what's the best way to treat you know, asylum seekers or illegal arrivals. Um, I, from my experience, I've seen a lot of... Um, I think unfairness is is the word because there has pe- there has been over the years people who came the same way so through the same channel whether it's so say we call it illegal okay that's it they some people who came through the illegal cha- way had the same claims same ethnicity uh, same religion or whatnot depends on their on their claim and were given permanent residency in the country and they were able to you know. Um, you know, get their uh, claims um, positively uh, assessed, where people who missed that deadline by one day and now they have been in in the country for a number of years, not knowing what's going to happen to them, not knowing what's going to happen to their families overseas, and they've just uh, been, um, you know, given a temporary protection visa that can be renewed to another temporary protection visa. The situation is not clear. Um, I think that's one, one part where I personally um, you know struggle to understand what or why would um, someone I mean understand the law has changed and I we, ac- we accept that and respect that that's my job as a lawyer um, so it seems that it's gotten stricter is that right the conditions have been the, the level of qualification has been raised def- right definitely why um, why is is it's a government policy uh, that's I can't answer for the government but um, obviously, what what the government, um, you know, um, says is that by by making this process stricter, they are saving lives. Um, but because the number of, of of asylum seekers who prepared to take this journey have decreased, and that's. It's doc- well, doc- very well documented. That that's. I was going to propose an idea, Amir. Correct me if I'm wrong, or just you know, feel free to add to it. Uh, is this industry standard, as it were, like the way that we send people back? You know, they come here, we send them back, or would they come here and they are sent to an offshore island, a small island off the coast of Australia, and stay for years? Sometimes is that normal in immigration detention worldwide? Um, in some countries, I mean. With with what's happening around the world and and all the wars that the number of refugees is increasing and and there's countries who um, are small smaller countries than Australia and they um, with less facilities yet they accommodate a larger number of of, um, of refugees. Yes, like Lebanon, for example, a tiny country but a huge number of refugees, much more than we've taken in. Co- correct, correct. Um, 
and obviously this is they 90, 95% you know Syrian refugees um, that situation is like I mean every country have you know they every government have their their own policies um, some some countries are more accommodating than others um, in Europe the situation is not much better than 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 here in in parts of Europe in parts of Europe um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we are the only country that does that um, uh, however, I would have liked to see a more uniform um, process over the years to, um, you know, um, subject look look at every asylum seekers case separately and give it. They came. We are part of um, the United Nations Convention for Refugees. We're a signatory to that convention. They have the right to uh, to, to seek asylum and. We also have the right to refuse the application if the government sees that they don't they don't um, they don't meet the definition of a refugee. But to get a fair process, that's what we're asking for. It's not we're not saying you have to accept everyone. That no one has said that. But I know that not every single person who is seeking asylum um, qualifies for it. However. Uh, I I would like everyone to get the same treatment. That's that's all we're saying. Okay. So then, what about the options that the Australian government has been offered by other countries? You know, uh, New Zealand, for example, to just you know absorb the the numbers of of men and women and children probably on Manus Island, for example. I think the the New Zealand government and the, and its prime minister recently said we will handle this uh, you know this this problem ostensibly uh, of of people of this surplus of people about which you seem unable to move. I mean, we've been dealing with the with this uh, group on Manus for some years now. If we have governments that are offering us a solution, why is it that we haven't taken that solution? Again, Daniel, this is a government question. I personally don't understand why. I don't have an answer for it. Um, uh, I, I think that there has to be a solution once and for all. For Because, as you said, those people have been stranded in this island for years with minimum um, you know, medical attention and so on. Um, some people took their lives over the years. Um, it's, it's very... Um, I, I would say that we have to make a decision either way. Are we going to send them back? Are they, are, yeah, yeah that, that one way or the other. I understand what you mean. But then you also mentioned something very interestingly. You spoke of this standard, you know, the standard of uh, qualification with which Australian asylum seekers must, must comply. So what is it that the Australian government uh, demands in order for one to be considered a legitimate refugee? Yeah, well, it's not just the Australian government. It's a definition of a refugee worldwide under the the United Nations um, Convention for for Refugees, 1951. Um, under the, there's a definition of a refugee, so it's a person who um, you know is outside their um, their home country. They um, they there's a genuine fear um, uh, on their life if they go um, to this country because of one or more of five reasons, whether it's their race, religion, uh, membership of a particular social group, um, um, or lack of. Um, so some people are stateless. They don't have, um, they're not recognized to be a citizen of any country. I personally had um, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people in, in this situation where they're born um, in a country that does not 
um, you know, they're staying there illegally. They just get on some sort of an ID card just to say that they do exist, uh, but they have no rights. Um, and so they live their whole life with no identity, pretty much. Um, they don't have a citizenship. They have an ethnicity. They don't have a citizenship. And um, it's obviously, um, I mean, we sometimes take things for granted, you know, but when you see those cases from all around the world, it's definitely an eye-opening experience, like what I was saying before. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Are there any experiences you wanted to share in particular, Amir? I think the, the, the hardest one for me personally was to see, um, as I said, the, the kids at, at a very, very tender age, you know, going through this journey, which is a horrific journey. Um, I, I know people can sit and say, criticize the parents for, you know, sending their young kids to come here and, and expose them to those dangers. But I think on the other hand, you probably need to think how bad is it? how dangerous is it in those people's home country to, to, to actually take this decision to send your 12 years old son um, th- through this kind of journey, you know? Uh, um, so, and also I've seen people the years where they ha- they coming and staying here for years in detention centers, and that would be their second time, say, to apply for detention. So they've been in a detention center in another country for, you know, six, seven years, you know, sometimes in, in, in the UK or somewhere in Europe, then they come apply here, they stay again for another number of years. So it, they, pretty much their whole life has been in um, in, in, in detention centers, which is a prison, you know, for no crime that they've committed. They just want, you know, um, they feel they are in danger. They feel like their life is in, is in danger because of, you know, one of those reasons that I've mentioned. And I think the least we can do is to actually give them a fair and a quick process to, at the end of it to say, yes, you're, you, you are considered as a refugee here and we're going to move on and you're going to stay with, with us or no, and look at the mechanism to send them back. But what's happening and keeping people here for years with no answer is what frustrates everyone. Mm. And frustrates you, Amir? Personally, yes, um, because, I mean, those are my clients and... Um, when they ask me what's happening or when are we going to find out, I have no answer for them in most most of the time. Um, it's frustrating. Um, another issue, actually, Daniel, that I wanted to talk about, and um, I have talked about this before in, in, in the media, is there has there, there's, there's a group of, of, of asylum seekers who have been disadvantaged by the recent changes to the Citizenship Act. So well, I'll explain it quickly. Um, so people would apply for protection and being recognized as a refugee as refugees in Australia and get given the a permanent residency but due to recent changes changes in government policies they if, if they apply for example to bring their um, spouses from overseas and kids their application does not get prior uh, priority so they're always at the bottom of the of the queue um, and they've been waiting for, uh, I have many cases um, that they've been waiting for, you know, four or five years to um, to be able to bring their um, their, their, their family. Um, I have a problem with this because if we have, as a country, as in Australia, we have decided that 
we this person is a genuine refugee and therefore they're a permanent resident because we've assessed their claim and found them to be a refugee. Once they're a permanent resident, they should be getting the same treatment like every other permanent resident of this country um, enjoys. Um, if they want to sponsor a family member, uh, their spouse, their kids, their brother, they should their application should be treated exactly the same like everyone else. And that's another issue that frustrates, I think, uh, you know, a large number of people. Right. I mean, just um, confirm one more time for me. In what circumstance are these people expected to have to be, uh, you know, to push down the queue, as it were? What kinds of cases are these? So we, I'm talking here about someone who came through um, so an illegal maritime arrival who applied for... Right, I see. Yeah, who applied for... Um, a refugee status, applied for protection, was successful, became a permanent resident of Australia, and now is in the process of sponsoring, make, you know, lodging, say, a spouse visa application, for example, for his wife and children from overseas, just as an example. Merely because they came on a boat, it sets them back. Yes, yes. Right. Amir, um, is there anything we can do? Because obviously, few of us work in the you know in the offices of government. Is there anything we can do from an advocacy point of view, from a personal point of view? We live in a democracy. I mean, I know that you can't criticise outright because that doesn't really help you know the the nature of your contribution to a solution. But um, you know, is there something that we can change? You know, as citizens, as citizens, I think there's we hear a lot of. Um um, you know, negativity around um, asylum seekers, especially the ones who uh, come through this way, um, say that they are queue jumpers and, 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 and whatnot. But I think um, I do encourage people, if, if they have that time, to actually, I would say, volunteer and actually go spend time with, um, you know, some, some of those people who went through this journey. Mm. Um, to actually hear the atrocities and what happened to them in their home countries and why they are actually, because it's a, it's a life threatening journey. Yeah, they they there's there's people who have you know firsthand I've seen people who lost family members on their journey coming here to Australia, um, and it's it's not an easy thing by any means. But I think the question that we all sh should ask: Why would someone do that? We're sitting here, um, you know, judging some of those people, but um, if you actually um, deal with them firsthand and hear the stories and understand, you'll have more appreciation of, of, of why they, they're here and, and feel like we actually they actually deserve a quick a quicker a quicker answer mm. um, and, and solution and better conditions if from what I hear that the conditions are really bad in Manus Island and and um, and if if we can accommodate them somewhere here, it's a government policy at the end of the day. But I think um, safety-wise, for minors and for 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 you know, there's 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 a lot of a lot of struggle in in uh, in uh, in Manus. We'll keep an eye on the Facebook post and uh, the social media for this episode, and we will provide some. Uh, volunteer organisations that we think might be a good way of, you know, meeting firsthand some of the, uh, the individuals, some of the human beings on the other side of this, of this big conversation, which seems sometimes so remote sometimes and so removed from daily life. So, Amir, I thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated it today. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
And to our listeners, I say thank you for listening to Conversations with Daniel Moore. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to Conversations by searching iTunes for Cradio or Conversations with Daniel Noor. You can also find us on Facebook under Conversations with Daniel Noor. My own surname shouldn't be so confusing. You can also share this with a friend who might be interested in the asylum seekers crisis as well as the global refugee crisis. Also, do us a favor and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The way the algorithm works is that any episodes you rate highly are more likely to be seen, which helps us to get the good word out there. Finally, subscribe to the Cradio newsletter by clicking subscribe on cradio.org.au. Bye.